Go ahead and grab your Bibles. I want you to open them up to Luke 22. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. Luke 22. While you're, while you're finding Luke 22, let me ask you a question. Do you believe your God is great? Okay, that was, uh, that was pretty mediocre. Uh, maybe you weren't ready for it. You know, it's just right off the bat. You're ready for a story or something. Let me go ahead and ask you again. Do you believe your God is great? <laughs> okay. I think he's pleased with that kind of faith. Now, our God, I believe, you believe, our God is great. Let me ask you a question. Do you believe you are created in the image of God? Yes? yes? Okay. Do you believe you are great? Yes. Oh, that's a tricky one, isn't it? With sin or without sin, Jason? Like, theologically, what are you talking about over here? Here's what I want you to know. You were created to be great. For you to bear the image of God means that he created in you greatness. But I know the, I know the struggle you have. You're going, but I look in the mirror and I don't see somebody great looking back at me. Like when, I, when I take off the mask and I really see who I am, I don't see greatness looking back at me, Jason. So yeah, yeah, I get that whole image of God thing, but I don't feel great. Well, let me tell you what's going on. Sin has distorted the greatness that God has put inside of you. And the number one way it distorts it is it makes your desire to be great selfish. Like, I want to be great so that I feel good about myself, so that people respect me, so that people will do what I ask them to do. I want to be great for my own sake instead of wanting to be great for God's sake. And the moment it becomes selfish, that, that fingerprint of God in you to be great becomes evil. I mean, you see it all the time. Like, how many times have you seen somebody who's a, a business person and they're, they're trying to do a great job, they're trying to be great, and all of a sudden they neglect their family. They don't go to any of their kids' ball games. They don't, they're not there at night with their family. They completely neglect their family. Why? Because they're trying to be great over here, but it's for themselves. Because I want to feel successful, because I want to make it to the top. What ended up being good has been distorted to become evil. Or, let me be really honest, how about the mother who pushes her children to the brink of despair saying, well, I want y'all to be great, but really it's because they're little trophies that the mama has and their success looks good for them. They're trying to be great for their own sake and they push their kids to the point where they, the kids don't even want to be around their mom anymore. Or how about, you know, you got some work associates and you, you have a work you do together and there's a promotion all of a sudden that comes up and there are four or five people gunning for the same promotion and then that one dude starts spreading lies about everybody else so he can look good while they look bad and get the promotion. Wants to be great, wants to move up. And all of a sudden, evil comes out. We were designed by God to want to be great, to bear his image. But we have to be great God's way, not the world's way. That's what Jesus wants to teach us this morning in Luke 22. Now, before we read Luke 22, I remind you, we have a lot of guests always tuning in. I'm so glad you're watching. We're, we're on a journey right now. We, we're going, we started all the way back in early January with the uh, triumphal entry, walking with Jesus through the Gospel of Luke all the way until Easter Sunday and the resurrection of Luke 24. And we're just taking it chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Last week, in the first part of chapter 22, we got into a really hard moment where we realized now they found a way to kill Jesus. And it was through one of his own, through Judas. Really heavy moment to hear that Judas is going to betray Jesus. And then it comes to the upper room in the Last Supper. And it's this heavy time when Jesus says, guys, I'm going to die. He says, this bread you're eating, it represents my body. That one that's going to be pierced and crushed for you. And he says, this cup represents my blood, which is going to be poured out for you. There's no doubt he's talking about his death 
when he's referring to his blood being poured out. There was this huge, somber weight upon everybody from what Jesus was talking about. And then he just rap, he ratchets it up even more and he says, and one of you guys are going to betray me. And they just, man, that, that heavy, tense moment, they just start going, it can't be me, right? It can't be me. It can't be blaming everybody else because they're just overwhelmed by that moment. And you would think the last way they would respond to that is how they do in verse 24. The very next verse, listen to what happens. This is Luke 22, verse 24. It says, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Now stop and think about the context here. When it says a dispute also, it means they were already disputing. And I, I, I told you that last week. Remember, that was a whole, like, we blame everybody else for everything. We don't realize the sin inside of ourselves. So they're going, it can't be me. It's got to be you. It's got to be you. It's got to be There's no way it's me because I would never do that to Jesus. And in the middle of that dispute, another dispute breaks out as to which one of them is the greatest. There's a side where you're like, who are these disciples? Like, did, did Jesus just pick the crummiest people he could find and put them together? By the way, this isn't the first time. They've been arguing for like six months about who's the greatest. You can go all the way back to Luke 9 and hear them begin to argue about it. Jesus has just said, guys, I'm going to die. My blood is going to be spilled all over the ground for you. One of you is going to betray me. And all they can say is, no, no, I'm the best. I mean, like, I'm Jesus' homeboy. Now, I want you to know, you other people don't come close. I'm his favorite disciple. What? What is wrong with these people? In fact, I, I was studying this going, just, just trying to get my mind around, like, how in the world could they behave this way? And then it clicked. Oh, I know why that they were arguing this way. It was because of what happened in the verse before. In verse 23, they're arguing about who's going to betray him. They're going, it's not me. So somebody goes, well, it must be Peter. And Peter goes, no, man, there's no way it's going to be me. I'm the greatest disciple. I would never, I would never betray Jesus. It's probably James. And James goes, what are you talking about, Peter? I'd never, I'm the greatest disciple. I would never betray Jesus. It was, par, it was probably Philip. Philip goes, no, 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 God, you all whack, man. I, I'm, the, I'm the greatest disciple. I would never do that to Jesus. It was actually in their blaming everybody else that caused them to go, I must be the greatest. I would never do that. Which, by the way, this was their mindset. If you remember, James and John go, hey, we want to sit when you come in your kingdom on your right and your left. The positions of power. We want to be at the top of the rung. Peter says, when Jesus says, you're going to deny me, he goes, no, all those other 11 scumbags might deny you, but I'll never deny you. They were so sure of themselves. They thought they were great. But it was about themselves. Give me the position of power. Make me look good in front of others. It was this selfish ambition. And Jesus says, guys, Y'all don't even understand greatness. So he decides in that moment now, it's time to correct them. Verses 25 to 27 is Jesus explained to us what real greatness looks like. Back to the text. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. So Jesus starts by saying, guys, you got it all wrong. You're looking at greatness from the perspective of the world, not from the perspective of the kingdom. Just think about the Gentiles. The kings of the Gentiles, that's the ungodly people, they exercise lordship over their people. Now, I want you to know, I'm going to teach you a little Greek lesson. It's not that hard. The word for Lord in Greek is kurios. 
And that verb, exercise lordship, is kurieo. It just means to lord over somebody else. It means I play the part of master, you guys play the part of my slaves. That's what it means to exercise lordship over somebody else. I'm in control, I call the shots, you do what I say. And in their minds, that was the epitome of greatness. The one who was on the top of the food chain told everybody else what to do and they said, yes sir, yes ma'am, that's the one who's great. In fact, even that next line, which is confusing in the way it's translated, feeds this idea when it says, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. Another little Greek lesson for you, it says, are called benefactors, meaning that they're good to you. That phrase, uh, are called, is the passive form of a Greek verb. Or, excuse me, it's the reflexive form of the, of the Greek verb, which can be either passive or middle voice. I'm telling you something you don't need to remember at all. A couple of you English teachers will know this. The rest of you just go, bloop, that's fine. But here's the, way, the difference, the way it works out. It's translated in the passive vo- form right there. The, the people who exercise authority are called benefactors, as if somebody else is calling them that. But it is probably more appropriately translated the middle voice, which we better put, and those in authority call themselves benefactors, like it's something they do to themselves. Here's what it means. These people are so full of themselves, and they say, you do what I tell you to do, you just shut up and do it, it's good for you. I'm being gracious to you by telling you what to do, because I'm that good, you're that low. That was the pride and arrogance of the world and the way it viewed greatness. I'm so amazing, you do what I say and you like it. If you've ever been around somebody like that, it'll make you vomit in your mouth. They're so full of themselves. Like that's, that's horrible arrogance and pride and destructive behavior. Yet this is what the world calls greatness. I'm going to go ahead and be honest with you. If you want to look at it from a worldly perspective, nothing has changed in almost 2,000 years. You want to know what the world calls great? Whoever's at the top. We see somebody and we want to know, well, who's the CEO of that company? We find out who it is and we look at how they live and, man, they are on top. They tell anybody what to do in the company and everybody else just does it. They got like four or five personal assistants. They live in this big old fancy mansion. They get private access to clubs. They're just rich beyond measure. We go, man, that, that dude, that woman has made it. It seems great to the world. Or, or we look at that, that person who... They made it to the the movie star or pop star level, and they have an entourage that just does whatever they want. And they they have private chefs in their home. They can take vacation wherever they want. They have adoring fans everywhere they go. And like, oh, man, to be like that, that would be amazing because we think that's great. That's what the the world views as greatness even today, 2,000 years later. And Jesus says, guys, that's how the world views it. That is not greatness in the kingdom of God. Let me tell you what greatness in the kingdom of God is. Everyone who is at the top, you go to the bottom on purpose. He says, who's, who's great? He uses two examples. Is it the, the one who leads is great or the one who serves? He says, no, don't, don't be like the, the leader, the greater one. Choose to be the youngest. Now, some of you are offended by that. I'm a youngest brother, you know, like, well, that's kind of offensive choose to be the youngest, like it's a bad thing. But back then, to be the youngest meant you had no rights. It meant you had to do what every older sibling told you to do. You were considered the least worthy in the family. And so it meant I choose to give up any rights I have. I choose to be insignificant, to be lowly. And then he says, well, who's, who's greater? The one who serves 
the table or the one who's kicking back, just sitting there relaxing while somebody's fanning him with a palm branch and feeding him grapes? Well, obviously, it's the one reclining at the table and other people are serving. And Jesus says, but look at me. Who am I? I'm the king of kings and lord of lords. He says it in, in Mark 10, 45, and I didn't come to be served, but to serve and give myself as a ransom for many. Look at how I live. Imitate me. You think I'm great? Imitate me, because I choose to be the lowest. Now, he's saying this right after an incredibly important moment. It's not, it's not in the Gospel of Luke, but if you were to go to the Gospel of John, chapter 13, you would, you would have read about the foot washing. So there was a moment, and this was a test. I believe Jesus was put his disciples to the test when they go up to the upper room, and there is no servant there to wash their feet just to see would anybody stoop themselves down to that level. Because here's what you've got to understand. Only the lowest of slaves would wash feet. So I don't know if you know this, but there was a categorization of slaves in the ancient world. Like the highest ranking slave was somebody who might be running the books of a person's estate. They were kind of like the business person, and they were in charge of things, and they, they were a slave, but they had a high position. It was pretty posh. They always had food on the table, and everything was good for them. Then the next rung down from there was a more service-minded slave, and this would be a person who might serve tables or or might set things up for events or whatever, that, that would be the next category down a slave. The one below that would have been the one who was working out in the fields or the person who was cooking the food. And then the lowest rung of slaves was the one who had to go shovel the dung out in the streets and who had to wash people's feet. If you were that kind of slave, there was no lower you could go. And so here you have the slaves, or you have the, the slaves role to wash feet, but there is no servant, no slave there to do it. None of the disciples are ever going to stoop down to the fourth category of lowness of slave. So they do the nastiest thing ever, and they eat their important meal with stanky feet, and everybody can smell it, and no one's willing to do anything about it. Until right in the middle of the meal, which was the most awkward time to do it, Jesus gets up, and he takes off his robe of rabbi. And then he gets a towel, and it says servant's towel, but you'll see a little tag on it that says doulos, which means slave. It's a slave's towel that he puts around his waist. And he gets down on his hands and knees, and he starts washing their feet. And it's so nasty, so degrading, that Peter says, there ain't no way, Jesus, I'm going to let you wash my feet. No way I'm going to let you be a, a level four slave. I mean, you're, you're the son of God. You're the rabbi. You're the Messiah. No way you could do that. And that's when Jesus says, Peter, if you don't do this, you've got no part with me. And then after it, he says, as I have done, you go out and do. And I don't think he was saying, go out and wash every person's feet that you see walking through in school. And like every time somebody walks in the classroom, well, well, slow down, I got to wash your feet real quick. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, I want you to take that level of humility upon you to be that kind of person that would choose to be the absolute lowest. Go do it. This is exactly what you see. The Apostle Paul said, I want you to flip or keep your place in Luke 22. I want you to go to Philippians chapter 2. Very famous passage of scripture, starting in verse 5. The Apostle Paul is telling us about the mindset of Christ. Philippians 2, 5 says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And when it says the form of a servant, you'll see a little footnote if you're reading a Bible, and down below it'll say doulos, which again is the word for slave. By taking the form of the lowest of lows of humanity, a slave. That's what Jesus is saying to them in that upper room. 
I want you to take the lowest of lows. But the Apostle Paul, and we know something the disciples did not know in the upper room. Verse 9, it said in Philippians 2, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I want you to hang there in Philippians 2 for a moment. I want to say this. They hadn't yet seen, but Jesus was about to go even lower than he'd gone before. He was going to go so low that he wouldn't just be a fourth-level slave. He was going to be qualified and classified as a common criminal, insurrectionist, murderer, a person who deserved to be crucified for public shame. All that, even though he was perfectly innocent. There was no lower he could go. And he says to the people, as I have done, so should you do. Stop trying to be great. Stop trying to be on the top. Choose to be the lowest of lows. Give preference to everybody else. You choose to be insignificant and powerless and humble and lowly. He's telling that to us today too. Stop trying to be great for your own sake. Stop trying to always make it to the top of everything you do. Stop trying to be important to feel like you're worthy of somebody else's respect. Stop trying to be great and be the least, be the lowest. Give up your rights for the sake of others. Now, I've got to be honest with you. There's some of you right now going, that sounds like that stinks. Like, why, why would I ever want to do that? What kind of life is that? That's what following Jesus would look like. Peace, I'm out. I don't want that. I mean, if I did that, people would walk all over me, take advantage of me. I mean, that'd be, that'd be terrible. Like, what, why would anybody choose that, that lifestyle? Well, there's a reason why you should choose this lifestyle. And it's not so that you have a living hell when you're on earth. Here's the reason why. God always exalts those who humble themselves. All over the scriptures. I mean, like over and over and over and over. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves. First Peter chapter 5, verse 6, one of the greatest verses. Humble yourselves, therefore, before the mighty hand of God, and at the right time, he will lift you up. You humble yourself so he can be great instead of you. This is exactly what you see in Philippians 2. Jesus humbled himself further than any human could humble himself. And what does God do? Exalts him higher than any human has ever been exalted. Look at it. Philippians 2, verse 9. Pick back up. It says, therefore, because he humbled himself to death on the cross, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He went to the lowest of lows, and the Father took him to the highest of highs. Listen, that promise wasn't just for Jesus. It was for everyone who would choose to be his disciple and follow his pattern. I want you to go back to Luke 22. After he tells them, imitate me, be lowly like me, be the least significant, be the, the one who serves. He says in verses 28 to 30, because you imitate me, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials, he says, meaning my suffering, my rejection, my lowliness. And I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. He said, I want you to imitate me. I want you to be lowly. And here's why. One day it's going to be worth it. That whole language about thrones and banquet tables and judging the 12 tribes of Israel, this is all about royalty. That's what he's saying. You're going to be my royalty. You're going to be with me in a kingdom and you're going to get to rule. It's going to be worth it. Yeah, you got to sacrifice. you got to give up right now on earth. But one day, I promise you, disciples, it's going to be worth it. Trust me. 
Have faith in me. Follow me. Don't follow the world. Follow me. And that's what he's asking of you. So maybe you're going, okay, Jason, I I hear you. Uh, And I might even believe you, but I don't know what that looks like. Uh, What does that mean? Does that mean like every time I go to Chick-fil-A, I got to get to the back of the line? You know, I just got to keep waiting and I never get up to the front to order my food. Does it mean like if I'm in traffic and I always got to let somebody cut in front of me because that's what it means? Does it mean like some, every time somebody has a preference and I have a preference, I never get to tell my preference, I got to always go with theirs? I mean, is that, what it, is that what it looks like? What does it look like to imitate this lowliness? Well, I'm glad you asked. Here's what it looks like. It doesn't look like what you think. I genuinely believe the greatest way you can imitate Jesus is through the simple act of humble prayer. I've always heard this passage taught, and there's definitely truth to this, this whole idea of servant leadership. And servant leadership is amazing. I pray that Christians serve as servant leaders out in the marketplace. But I don't think that's Jesus' main point right here. I think that's a corollary point. His point isn't, hey, when you're at the top, be humble and serve others. His point is, I want you to choose to be as low as possible before me and before others. Because when you do, you see my greatness. Let me ask you a question, a little, little Bible history here, and I actually want some of you to shout it out. Where does Jesus go next after the upper room? Does anybody know? The Garden of Gethsemane. That's right. High five, Susan. Way to go. He goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, somebody else, yell out. What does he do in the Garden of Gethsemane? Praise. Praise. I think Jesus is saying, I want you to be low like me, and let me show you what lowly, lowliness looks like. Here I am, God in the flesh, the Messiah, and I'm about to go to a garden at Gethsemane and get on my face, and I'm going to pray so hard, drops of blood are going to come off me like sweat. I'm going to declare my need for God and his power because I can't do this on my own. Oh, God, let the cup pass from me. I can't handle this, but not my will. Your will be done. Strengthen me. Angels have to come and give the Son of God strength to endure what he's about to do because he knew he couldn't handle it on his own. What does he do? He humbles himself even more and he prays. I believe the number one way you live this out is by choosing to humble yourself before God in prayer. And and maybe you're going, I don't see the connection point. Like, how does that connect with prayer? And and maybe because you don't really understand prayer. I, I wonder sometimes if we don't have a wrong view of prayer, we think prayer is telling God what to do. All right, God, I need you to heal that person. God, I need you to fix this relational issue. I need you to give me that check in the mail. God, I need you to do this. I need you to do this. You got it, God? We good? I'm out. We think that's what prayer is. There's a story Jesus gives. I want to end with this story in the scriptures about the right kind of prayer and the wrong kind of prayer. It's just a few chapters before. It's actually back in Luke 18. It's one probably you're familiar with. Luke 18, verses 10 through 14. Listen to what it says. It says, two men went up into the temple to pray. It sounds like a joke, right? Two men went into a bar, one a tax collector, one a Pharisee. But it's not a joke, people. Listen in. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers. Then he goes, even like that sorry dog tax collector right there. How full of himself can this guy be? I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Here's this Pharisee going, check me out, God. Apparently, I am God's gift to humanity. You have made me incredible. I am so holy. I am so good. God, thank you for making me pretty much 
the best thing you've ever made in the history of humanity. And then there was another dude who was there. You keep going on the story, verse 13. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He he wouldn't even look up at God. There's no pride or arrogance. He's broken at the end of himself. He can't even look up lest he accidentally make eye contact with God. He just beats his chest and he goes, oh God, I know I'm screwed up. I know I failed. Please just have mercy on me. Verse 14, Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. He said, that Pharisee, so full of himself, trying to tell God how great he is and tell God what to do? No. That man's going to go away with nothing. But that broken, lowly tax collector who was willing just to get on his face before God and say, oh, God, have mercy on me, that's the one that walked away justified. There's a right way and a wrong way to pray. There's pride, God, I'm going to tell you what to do, and you do it, or there's just, God, I have no right to tell you what to do. I'm just going to come before you and bow down. And I believe when we take that posture, we begin to see the power of God. Because when I become weak, what does the Apostle Paul says, say? Then Christ becomes strong. He says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Not when you got it all together and you're great, but when you don't have it, when your life is falling apart and you get on your face before me and you're weak, that's when you see my power. I think he's saying, would you choose to be humble? Would you choose to be incapable? Would you trust me? Listen, I want you to know the Lord's been teaching me this in a profound way personally over the last few years. I'm going to go ahead and tell you something you may not know. Uh, every seminarian, that's a seminary student, who's in school training to be a pastor, if they're, if they're wanting to go into ministry and be a pastor, has this little secret dream they don't tell everybody. They don't tell anybody. And that secret dream is that one day they're going to lead a really large church and they're going to make the Outreach Magazine top 100 fastest growing churches and they're going to write books and they're going to be on the speaking conference and they're going to be somebody great. Every seminarian has that same dream. And I'll go ahead and publicly declare for all of online to see, I had that same dream when I was in seminary. One day, God, it's going to be great. We're going to do great things together. You and me, God, it's going to be great. Now, honestly, uh, I had some really hard moments. I got rejected by a church of 35 people. It didn't feel really great then. Uh, I snuck into Fielder in the back door, as back as you could get. And God, in his crazy sense of humor, a decade later, lands me in a place where I'm actually leading this huge church. And honestly, that was about seven and a half years ago. I thought, now's the time, baby. It's time to be great. It's going to happen. You've handed the baton to me, God. It's time to be great. So what do I do? I start reading about leadership and how do, we, how do you manage a team and how to dream big and how to cast vision because I want to be a great leader. And I get away and I pray and I fast and we come together with this big vision of where God has taken us. And then I say, okay, I'm going to discipline us as an organization. I'm going to make sure everybody knows the job that they're doing. I'm going to oversee this thing. We're going to make sure we stay the course. We're going to have retreats. We're going to work hard. We're going to be great. And you want to know what happens? Nothing happens. I start going in this time, and I'm leading. About the first four years of my leadership, we grow a little bit. I'd say something, tick people off. They'd leave, go down. We grow a little bit. I'd say something stupid. They'd leave, and it just did this. And, I, and, and then, you know, the pandemic. And, and about a year after the pandemic, uh, we kind of arose from this weird moment, and we survived it. 
But I came to this realization, all the people that left in the pandemic, they ain't coming back. We, we were a, a, a much bigger church at, at, in 2020, the beginning of the year, than we were 2021 at the beginning of the year. I mean, we were no more than two-thirds the size we were before, and nobody was coming back. And I thought, I'm a failure as a leader. I, I can't do it. I'm not good enough. I thought this was my chance. God, to be great, and I blew it. And I began to wonder, should I even be the pastor of this church? Maybe I just need to get out of the way, because apparently when I'm at the helm, bad things happen. It's mediocre at best. And I had, had endured a really hard staff transition. I was just feeling empty. I didn't feel like I was connecting deeply with the Lord. My, my wife and I were at a conference, and we were there. Shane and Shane was leading worship at this conference, and they were singing a song, uh, Psalm 23. It's the Lord is my shepherd. And there's a, a, a part in there where you sing about the goodness and mercy of God. And I remember saying to the Lord, I don't feel your goodness and mercy right now, God. All I feel is like I'm a failure, like I can't do it, like you didn't give me the power to do it, God. And I began to weep because I'm just broken in my own failure. I thought I had my chance. Apparently, I blew it. My wife, she's weeping next to me because she just cries with everybody who's crying. And here I'm crying. She's crying. She doesn't know why, but she sees me crying. She cries. And this guy who was there, he, he came up and he put a hand on my wife and on me. And he just starts praying for us. And it was the hand of God upon me. And God was inviting me. I've shared some of this with you. He was inviting me to stop trying to be great. He was inviting me to give up the facade and saying, your plans, they're cute, Jason. You need to scrap them. You need to get on your face, and you need to seek me. And here was the mantra he gave me, and I've said it to my staff ad nauseum, tired of hearing it. He told me, Jason, you do less. You watch me do more. You get out of the way. You stop trying to be great so I can be great. You get on your face. You humble yourself. What does it look like? I have a little prayer closet. It looks like this. I'm not there to tell God what to do. I'm there to bow before the King of kings and Lord of lords and say, God, you do what you want to do with your church. This is my job as a pastor. I thought it was to be a good leader. I thought it was to preach great messages. I thought it was to inspire, but no, this is what you called me to do. And then the craziest thing happened. All that stuff I was striving to do in my power and couldn't do, God says, now that you got your sorry tale out of the way, let me show you what I can do. This church is growing faster than it has ever grown before. There are more baptisms than we have ever seen. God is moving in power right now in ways that I can't even comprehend. The, the last two Wednesdays, we've baptized people after the, everything has been shut down because they come up to us going, what must I do to be saved? And we get to baptize them. They are coming to us. And I, here's, here's what I want, you to, I want you to know. Right now, God is doing what only God can do because we are finally getting out of the way, because I'm finally getting out of the way. And I'm humbling myself in prayer. And when I humble myself at the proper time, God exalts that work. I'm discovering the power of God when I get out of the way. I believe there are many of you in this room, and the reason you're not experiencing the power of God is because you are in the way, because you are too busy trying to solve your problem, trying to fix what you've broken, trying to make right what you've made wrong. You are trying to be great. And the Lord is saying to you today, 
Would you give up? Would you just confess, oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner? I'm not great, and I can't ever be great. And would you get on your face and pray? Listen, I want to challenge you to do something. I want to challenge you. Even If you're watching online, too, don't, don't think this isn't for you. This Wednesday, and every Wednesday for the remainder of the Lenten season, I want to challenge you to come to our prayer gatherings. They're from 6.30 to 8 p.m. These prayer gatherings, I'm going to go ahead and guarantee what you're going to do. You're going to have opportunity to get on your face before God. Literally. Get on your face. You're going to have, every time we do it, we confess sin. It's a time to go, I'm broken. Oh, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. We have time where we present our needs to other people going, I can't handle this. I need the power of God. I humble myself and say, would you pray for me? Would you help me? We have a chance to ask God to save the people that we want to save that we know we can't save. We write names down to people that we love, that we want to come into the kingdom of God. And no matter how much we've shared, we can't change them. And we say, God, I give up. I can't do it. So all I can do is pray and ask other people to pray for this person. It's a chance to humble yourself. I want to challenge you for these next four weeks that we have, that our prayer gatherings, you'll make them a priority, to humble yourself, to lower yourself so God can do what only God can do. I also want to challenge you to fast with us for 24 hours. I've shared this with you a number of times, but Tuesday before 8 p.m., finish your dinner, and then Wednesday, breakfast and lunch, skip it, and snacks, and come to the prayer gathering at 6.30, and then when the prayer gathering is over at 8, then you eat your meal. And the reason why we fast is because we are making ourselves weak. It is intentionally saying, your grace is sufficient for me, Lord, because your power is made perfect in my weakness. And so when I'm hungry, when I'm weak, I could give myself food or I could say, I choose to be weak, God, because I want to experience your power. Fasting all through the Bible is a, a, a chance to humble yourself. They used to do it with sackcloth and ashes as a way of humbling themselves. And I want to challenge you to be willing to humble yourself and to fast and pray. But I also want to say this right here, right now, this morning. You don't have to wait till Wednesday. There are some of you in this room and you have incredible need of God. We're going to have prayer partners down front in just a moment. And let me tell you what's going to happen. There are dozens of you. And you're going to say this lie to yourself. Well, I don't want to bother them. There are other people who need prayer. I want to let them go. And you think it's humble. But really the problem is you don't want people looking at you when you walk down front. You don't want to have to tell somebody else that you have need. Because it makes you look less put together. Lest you accidentally start weeping down front and people see those tears and think less of you. And I want to challenge you. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. If you're willing to humble yourself, maybe you don't even need to talk to somebody. Maybe you just get on your face and bow down and weep before the Lord and, and tell him your need. Or maybe you grab my hands or one of the other people who are up here, the prayer partner's hands, and say, pray for me, please. I can't handle this. Whatever need it is, this is you humbling yourself. But when you humble yourself before the mighty hand of God, at the right time, he will lift you up. Let me say one last thing before I open that time up. I know there are some of you who are here, and you got to do the most humbling thing of all. you got to declare that you are so broken through your own sin that you can never be made right with God. you got to be that tax collector who goes, oh God, I throw myself at your mercy. I have screwed up this life you've given to me. I've taken it to the pit. I'm wrecked. I'm broken right now. Listen, if you are at the end of yourself, you are exactly where you need to be because the end of yourself is the beginning of God. But you've got to be willing to come. You've got to be willing to throw yourself at the feet of the Lord and say, oh, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. This baptistry up here is intended to be a public spectacle of self-humbling 
Because you will either humble yourself or you will be humbled. And I want to encourage you to come humble yourself and say the old me needs to die. A brand new me needs to come out. You just got to come. Say, I'm ready for that. I'm broken. I need Jesus. I want to place my faith in him. I want to follow him in baptism today. We're going to be ready to meet you. You just got to come. I invite you all to stand up right now, if you will. Prayer team members, please make your way forward. We're going to spur it out around the front. We're saying, Lord, I'm looking to you right now. You may sing that in song, but I want to encourage you. If you have a need, don't be proud. Humble yourself, and you come, and you let us pray for you. And if you today are ready to say, Jesus, I'm giving my life to you. Have mercy on me, a sinner. You let us know, and we'll help you take the step of faith.